You can support The Historian's Podcast, link to our GoFundMe page from our website, bobcudmore.com. Colin Hager speaking. This is radio station WGY in Schenectady. W for wireless, G for General Electric, and Y for the last letter in our city. The media world was changing profoundly a hundred years ago, on February 20th, 1922, when General Electric began regular broadcasting on WGYAM radio, a station still on the air today. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. The Alexanderson Alternator, invented in Schenectady under deadline pressure by General Electric scientist Ernst Alexanderson, made possible the first voice transmissions over wireless in 1906. These broadcasts were made in Canada. General Electric's Schenectady shop received an experimental land radio license in 1913. Broadcast experiments were conducted in 1921 in Schenectady, and WGY signed on February 20th of 1922. Our references tonight have primarily been to the time when GE owned WGY. GE sold the station in the 1980s. WGY was the first radio station to solve a major criminal case, the 1923 kidnapping of Ernst Alexanderson's six-year-old son. Alexanderson's inventions made early radio possible. When his son was kidnapped, the inventor pleaded for the boy's safe return over WGY. The broadcast was heard by Bert Jarvis, Thousand Islands, over 150 miles from the station. The child's description fit that of a boy brought by a man and woman to the summer cottages where Jarvis was caretaker. Police were called, and soon young Werner Alexanderson was returned to his parents. Radio Broadcast Magazine carried the headline, Radio Repays Its Genius. The first voice heard on WGY on February 20th, 1922, was Colin Hager, the first announcer and manager of the Pioneer General Electric Station. Old-time listeners will recall that the government regulations insisted that we must abruptly go off the air when ships at sea were sending SOS signals. I had very carefully explained all this to our nervous singer before the broadcast began, but alas, her thoughts must have been elsewhere. Sure enough, she had just finished the song when the engineer flashed me the red light, and in front of a bewildered soprano, bewildered soprano, I announced, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Brown has just sung all through the night. We will now stand by for distress signals. <laughs> Colin Hager said that performers began to succumb to mic fright when talking to thousands of unseen people on a microphone. In other words, some people standing up to a microphone had a queer feeling of, oh boy, I'm getting nervous. And yeah, uh, yeah. We, I had a girl who was singing a song and she suddenly fell right back uh, in my arms. And uh, <laughs> I had to take her over to the side and I apologized to the listeners and said, the young lady uh, is, uh, uh, is a little bit ill for the moment, but I think she'll return to the microphone shortly. Please excuse this momentary uh, delay. Something like that. But anyway, this interesting sidelight, uh, what we did was put a lampshade on the microphones that stood about this high. Mm-hmm. And we put a lampshade on, a nice little 
harmless looking uh, shade so that when you stepped over to talk to anybody, you talked into the lampshade. Radio grew rapidly in the 1920s. Within 10 years, radio networks were providing programs that entertained a national audience. In the early 1930s, Irma Lemke Croman started working as an actress at WGY in Schenectady. Station manager Colin Hager changed her on-the-air name to Martha Brooks. In 1931, Irma Lemke came to work at WGY. Irma Lemke had been one of television's first performers in 1930 at the Jenkins television station, an experimental one in New Jersey. Given the advice that television was not going to make it, she returned to her native Albany, auditioned for and got a job as an actress at WGY. This woman had many names in the 30s on WGY. That was the style then. But by the end of the decade, she had been dubbed and would remain Martha Brooks, the voice of Howard Tupper. I came to work, as I have told you, and our audience has heard me say several times before, one of the first things I remember is saying, it's 9.15 and here's Martha Brooks with her market basket. Yeah, you know, it's very funny the way I slid around the clock. Because uh, one year I'd be on at 8.15, and the next year I'd be on, and that would be 15 minutes. The next year I'd be on at 9.15 for 45 minutes. Martha Brooks tells me that Colin Hager named her Martha Brooks, and she wasn't completely pleased. Because of the market basket, he created the name Martha Brooks. Was that the, really true? Yeah, because it had MB, and it had the same number of, of letters in it, see? And that suited his orderly soul. I see. I, I said to him, may I please use my own name? Because my name wasn't Croman, it was Irma Lemke. He said, certainly. So I went on the air and Philip Brook introduced me. And he said, here's Martha Brooks. And I turned around to him and I said, who's she? <laughs> but that was you who you were. He said, that's you. I said, since when am I the plural of your singular? Because his name was Brook and he introduced me as Brooks, and he ran. He, he ran out of the studio. For decades, Martha Brooks acted in WGY programs, wrote WGY programs, directed WGY programs, and created WGY programs. We did the first um, acted um, news show on, that was ever done, I believe, in the country. Yeah. It was called Headline Highlights. Mm -hmm. And I used to begin, begin writing at 5 o'clock at night, and we went on the air at 7. And it was a very fast job. Where'd you get me. your news? Out of the, the, the Herald Tribune and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Okay. I always looked for the little bits. I remember I dramatized the birth of the Dion Quintuplets, you know, among many other things. And one of the interesting things about that job was that the General Electric Law Department was very disturbed by it. They were fear, afraid of having um, libel oh, suits. So, in all of my acting, I could never mention that a person was a person. I couldn't call him by his name. Right. Gene O'Hare, who did the intro or the um, reportage no, job, he would mention the names of the people. That was okay. That was straight news. See? But when you began to act and depict the characters, I had to cast it so that you knew who people were without anyone mentioning a name. It was kind of fun. It was like playing a game of chess. Martha Brooks was talking with Earl Pudney there. 
Martha Brooks was a pioneer woman broadcaster in the 30s and 40s. What was that like? If you were a woman in the company for which I worked, you just weren't anybody. Because in the first place, GE engineers were superior people, and women weren't. And one did not give a woman the consider. I remember once about four GE engineers asked me to have lunch over in the GE uh, commissary, and I went. And during the lunch, they said, wouldn't it be nice if you had a, an education and a, a, a degree? And I looked at them, and I said, gentlemen, why don't you think I have a degree? Well, they said, no, you don't. I mean, you just came in and started to talk. I said, gentlemen, I have a Bachelor of Literary Interpretation from Emerson College. What are you going to do about that? <laughs> suddenly I was a person. They talked to me like I was an equal. It fascinated me the fact that this degree that I had earned some years before had suddenly put me on a higher elevation. But people loved Martha Brooks. During the war, for instance, if I would walk down the street, people would walk, run out of sorts and hand me a bunch of money and say, buy me some bonds. I didn't know who they were. They trusted me utterly and completely. It was a very interesting situation, and I had to fulfill that trust. And I did it to the best of my ability. No one can ever know what WGY meant to the people of this area during the Depression years. One man's family. Because they didn't have money to go anywhere, and they hardly, hardly had money to, for food at times, you know. But they had WGY. And that meant a great deal. This was an anchor. Sure. Pieces of copper and bits of steel, needles that flicker and tubes that glow, an antenna strung from towering spires. Modernist magic. Radio. From it came the news. From it came entertainment. From it came education. From it came hope. Because when Roosevelt became president, it was over this station that you heard his... The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. ...speech. This is one of the things that our station did. We have always stood as a kind of a giant in this area at WGY. Uh, I remember when Pearl Harbor came. It was our station who broadcast the first notice of that in this area. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air. President Roosevelt has just announced. And I was it so stunned. I was at home. And, and my first in, uh, desire was to get to the station where I knew the action would be if there was going to be any action and to help. But here in this area, it was our WGY who told people of this. GY was the carrier of all of this in this area. In times that were bad or times that were good, people turned to WGY for the information they wanted. And we, people who were here, were the people who were part of their families. We were like cousins, aunts, uncles, relatives. They really lived with us. Martha Brooks continued broadcasting at WGY for many years after World War II. WGY and WRGB television manager Charlie King 
and announcer and personality Howard Tupper went to work at WGY in the late 1930s. Another longtime WGY announcer, Earl Pudney, also will be heard on this coming segment. On television, Tupper delivered the weather, and Pudney performed with his musical group. Charlie King, broadcast pioneer, came to work at WGY in the late 1930s and worked as a page. This was big-time radio. We were NBC pages, by the way. Wore NBC uniforms. Uh, the announcers all wore tuxedos after 6 o'clock in the evening. We uh, toured 5,000 people a month through the studios, and we had audience uh, programs, at least a half a dozen that seated over 200 people for each one. In 1938, WGY began to occupy its new building, a beautiful Art Deco structure next to the main plant in downtown Schenectady. It was called Little Radio City. That building doesn't exist anymore, but Charlie King remembers it well. Everything was patterned after NBC. The uh, studio furniture were, were all pieces exactly like in the NBC studios in New York City. And much of the look was more, much like NBC. The kitchen studio was a fully equipped GE kitchen. And I remember taking tours through, and one of our lines was, it features a garbage disposal, which in those days was unheard of. And we said, it's so powerful, it can grind up the Sunday New York Times. This is Howard Tupper. I've been a staff announcer at WGY since 1937. Tupp came to work for WGY back then. His career spanned decades. He has passed on. But during his lifetime, Tupp did everything. He really liked doing big band remotes. He reminisced about that with fellow announcer John Sheehan. I used to go up to uh, Osavo Chasm for those network feeds of uh, dance orchestras, you know. Yeah. And you know, Hupp, I think uh, Tupp, a lot of people forget that WGY originated 15 or more network uh, programs to go to the Blue Network. Many a band made its name on those remotes. Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, Hal Kemp, Kay Kaiser, Frankie Carl, to name but a few. An engagement in this area was sought after eagerly by bands because of the amount of coast-to-coast airtime that they got on NBC through WGY. Earl Pudney came to work at WGY in the 1940s. In 1972, Earl Pudney and Howard Tupper talked about a morning show, which Earl Pudney did in the late 1940s, that involved... Earl playing the piano and also playing records. I tied in live piano with uh, recordings. Yeah. And uh, Ted Fisher uh, was with me for a long time as uh, engineer and technician and many of the other guys here. Earl, yeah. just take a moment and explain how that worked because uh, you've got a live piano and then you're going into, we'll say, a musical jingle. You're playing a song or singing a song and playing in, uh, we'll say, the key of F, and the musical jingle is in the key of uh, B flat. I'd modulate. I would modulate on the piano live. Well, I, I know what you did, but it took a lot of work behind the scenes, didn't it? Oh, we had a little dry run, a little sure. rehearsal. We spent time on that, yeah. A lot of time. Yeah, and those engineers had a lot of patience. They needed it with me. <laughs> no, I think it was one of the... One of the highlights of your career, I don't know how you rate it, but I certainly, from my experiences with you, rate your morning show as one of the highlights of my career because uh, I so enjoyed being there, you know, in different capacities. I had a chance to listen to you once in a while, and I, I think that was the, one of the greatest uh, morning silly shows we ever had. I uh, enjoyed very much doing it. Tough. 
Gave me a lot of pleasure. It was a mutual admiration society between Tupper and Pudney. When Howard Tupper passed away, Earl Pudney chose these words. He always had a very close rapport with his audience, you know. He never talked down to them. That was one thing about Tup. He was always a gentleman. During the GE years, WGY created programs geared to farmers, including Don Tuttle's Farm Paper of the Air. Tuttle here talks about a program segment called the WGY Traveler, done by Enoch Squires. He was the professional professional who could go into a town unknown and in a half an hour later would have unlocked all the skeletons of all the closets of that town and could bring out little-known stories that even people living there themselves for years had forgotten about and make them so interesting that you wish you could stretch out that five- or eight-minute period that Enoch Squires talked about. An archive of WGY Traveler shows can be found at the New York State Museum archives in Albany. GE still owned WGY when newspaper reporter and teacher Ellie Pankin joined WGY to do a daily talk show. Proctor's Theater, 1987. The late WGY talk show host, Ellie Pankin. Thank you, Mary. Very, very much, and a good evening to all of you. I guess I should throw in a little bit of how long I've been with WGY and loving every minute of it. I came 13 years ago this month to WGY, and it's been a wonderful thing in my life, and you all have helped to make it so. I hope we go on forever. And we're going now into an exciting time because this year also marks another anniversary for us, our 30th year in our present location on Balltown Road in Iskayuna. We moved in November 10th, 1957. Would you believe it? We're still waiting for one load of furniture. <laughs> Prior to our move, we sadly marked the last in a long life of birth. April 18, 1956 was the last live drama which originated from our Schenectady studio. Diane Ward was a news reporter at WGY and closed a 1992 tribute to WGY history with these credits. Creating Radio, the people who made WGY was produced by Bob Cudmore. Audio sources were the 1952 WGY anniversary program hosted by the late Howard Tupper. The 1972 WGY history program produced by Howard Tupper and directed by Lou Correa. The 1972 WRGB program about WGY history, produced by Bill Futrell and Walt McDowell. The 1987 WGY anniversary program, produced by Bob Cudmore. Special assistance from Terry Walden of WRGB-TV. This is Diane Ward. This is Bob Cudmore. We welcome Mike Patrick, a familiar voice as a news anchor on WGY radio in the Capital District today in 2022. And you recently uh, had a promotion, I, th I think it was. What happened, Mike? I have now become the uh, the new morning anchor at WGY News. Uh, George Morris moved on, and they didn't have anybody else left. So they said, well, Mike, take the job. Okay. Well, congratulations. <laughs> and for some time, uh, Mike, you have been interviewing alumni, if you will, of WGY to help celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the radio station. Can you tell us about this uh, podcasting project? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is something that uh, WGY wants to make a, a big deal out of being here for 100 years. Um, as I've mentioned to you, Bob, this is kind of a personal project to me, growing up here and knowing the power of WGY and knowing that it's 100 years. So I've been trying to reach out to anybody and everybody uh, who played a part, short of Colin Hager, uh, he's just unavailable right now, uh, but people like yourself, people like Jack Arnicky, people like uh, Mike Gallagher, Aaron Brilbeck, uh, we got Chuck Custer back in, uh, Buzz Brindle, uh, just way, there's about 60 people so far who I have spoken with, and we're going to take these interviews and we're going to turn them into podcasts up on the WGY.com site. should be coming up shortly. These will be up all year. And I find it fascinating, Bob, to get the connection between some of the former staffers. Uh, there's, there's common threads that they have uh, among them, everybody positively reflecting on Don Weeks, uh, reflecting on, on you, Bob, for one. Joe Gallagher reflecting positively, and I still haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> I know. Well, Joe is, uh, is a great radio comedian, I used to call him. In, in Every the... time I hear Joe, I laugh at him. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it's because he's funny, haha, or funny, peculiar. <laughs> so your these podcasts will be on the website of wgy.com. That's correct, and and they will be up uh, all year long. Uh, we are working on a couple of other specialties right now that has have not been officially announced yet, but we're looking at a, a public celebration, and we may do something a little old school as we're getting close to the actual 100th anniversary of uh, February the 20th of 2022. Good idea. The people that you uh, talked with, you say there's a whole variety of them, the people that we have had on this podcast are people like uh, Colin Hager that uh, you were not able to interview because he's, well, deceased. And the other uh, people that were being heard on the podcast uh, with you uh, include Martha Brooks. I don't know if you remember hearing about her. Mm -hmm. uh, Howard Tupper and yep. uh, Earl Pudney and a man named Don Tuttle who used to uh, head the farm paper of the year. When I was doing the nighttime talk show at WGY back in the 80s and early 90s, you were a WGY competitor, right? You were on the air on an FM station uh, as Shadow Michaels. Shadow Michaels, uh, the cry of desire, the dove of love, the bust of lust, the mighty party <laughs> beast of the great Northeast. See, 35 years later, and I can still say, yeah, I was at Fly 92 back then, and that was uh, actually that was my start of being in Capital District Radio. Like the Hank Snow song, I've been everywhere. I was in Indiana, I was in Ohio, I was in Vermont, I was in Massachusetts. I spent time here. I, I may have done prison time too, Bob, but I think they had a radio station. <laughs> and you have an interest in uh, old-time radio and, and old-time radio people. You like to uh, come to this uh, gathering we have, which we called the, the Louie Lunch, because it was named for a former uh, WGY engineer, Louie Cariga. But you... You really like, you seem to like to socialize with people who've been in, in radio for a long time. And again, not just WGY. Why is that? For me, Bob, I'm sitting at the kids' table. 
listening to the adults. Being in broadcasting has been probably one of my greatest thrills. And to be able to sit and, and listen to the stories of the, the people that I grew up either listening to or watching, and I also find some common threads. And I was a little bit nervous when I started first attending these luncheons because to me as growing up, these are the radio greats. But then as I learn more and, and become acquainted, I'm finding these are a bunch of just very bizarre people like the radio <laughs> people of today and there's not you know there's jokes uh, and there there's there's people goofing around and and I always thought it was going to be so formal and there may have been an occasional use of adult language uh by by some of our people and I'm I look at brother Lou Roberts and I'm going Lou if it had been 20 years prior we we could have fit right in <laughs> you could have uh, a couple of the other people I know you've uh, interviewed uh, you interviewed Don Weeks's daughter yes uh had a chance to have a, a great conversation I wanted to everybody knows about Don as a performer but speaking with family I wanted to have a view of Don Weeks the dad mm -hmm. Don Weeks the family member and in many cases it was they're, they're they're very similar people uh what you had with don on the air his personality was very much like the home situation he tells uh, there's a great story where he would sit in his chair when he'd get home every day after work and he'd be writing the jokes and he'd be writing the bits and he would bring the kids around and he would do these jokes and based on the reaction that he got from the kids, either it was a keeper or he just kind of scratched it off. So he was pre-screening his bits already. <laughs> that Another uh, interview that I found really fascinating was a man who I thought I knew well, but I learned a lot about him uh, from your conversation, and that was with Doc Perryman, uh, an African-American entertainer who worked at uh, WGY for a, a number of years. One of the things about Doc Perryman, and I was in particular very pleased that I had a chance to talk with Doc, being an old music jock that I, I was, I wanted to find out how his brain worked as far as playing the music, what to, what to get out there, what to say, and it was very free form. But you're right, Bob, unless we were in Doc Perryman's shoes or, or those of other African-Americans, we don't realize the challenges it was from even back in the 60s and continuing to be able to get a job not only in broadcasting but many others. And you can see how much things have changed over all of these years. So I think we've come quite forward with that. Just a couple more of the people you've talked with. You interviewed Walt Fritz. Tell us a bit about him. Yeah, Walt Fritz, uh, the, the story about Walt is he... Uh, was this little high school kid, uh, a, a radio dork, and I say that respectfully, <laughs> but we got hooked by the bug, and he, the story is, he came into WSNY, uh, and he wanted to get a job. Uh, Steve Fitz, who I believe was in charge, uh, said the standard radio answer that, sure, he can do the job, but we ain't going to pay him. 
<laughs> and Walt still took the job, and he just kind of moved on from there. And that is what also is a trend that we we find in the people that I've spoken to. And I know you understand this, Bob, but it's that bug. This is the equivalent of theater people. Theater people, once they get on and they're, they're, they need to perform, radio people, and I'll put television people in there too, they must continue. And in some cases, like I'll use Jack Arnegie for an example, Jack said, I loved it, but I was done after so many years. And I respect him for doing that, but there's always somebody who's doing something to extend that career somehow. Well, Mike Patrick of WGY News, I thank you for uh, talking with us on the 100th anniversary of the radio station. It's been a great pleasure, uh, Bob, and I thank you for joining in our conversations because you are just as big of a part of that history. Thanks to WGY for the use of audio originally heard on WGY. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. And I'm Bob Cudmore.